This episode is brought to you by Athletic Greens. I get asked all the time what I would take if I could only take one supplement. The answer is invariably Athletic Greens. I view it as all-in-one nutritional insurance. I recommended it, in fact, in the four-hour body. This is more than 10 years ago, and I did not get paid to do so. With approximately 75 vitamins, minerals, and whole food sourced ingredients, you'd be very hard-pressed to find a more nutrient-dense and comprehensive formula on the market. It has multivitamins, multimineral greens complex, probiotics and prebiotics for gut health, an immunity formula, digestive enzymes, adaptogens, and much more. I usually take it once or twice a day just to make sure I've covered my bases if I miss anything I'm not aware of. Of course, I focus on nutrient-dense meals to begin with. That's the basis. But Athletic Greens makes it easy to get a lot of nutrition when whole foods aren't readily available. From travel packets, I always have them in my bag when I'm zipping around. Right now, Athletic Greens is giving my audience a special offer on top of their all-in-one formula, which is a free vitamin D supplement and five free travel packs with your first subscription purchase. Many of us are deficient in vitamin D. I found that true for myself, which is usually produced in our bodies from sun exposure. So adding a vitamin D supplement to your daily routine is a great option for additional immune support. Support your immunity, gut health, and energy by visiting athleticgreens.com slash TFS. You'll receive up to a year's supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs with your subscription. Again, that's athleticgreens.com slash TFS, as in Tim Ferriss show. athleticgreens.com slash TFS. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Wookies and Mogwais. This is Tim Ferriss. Welcome to another episode of The Tim Ferriss Show. I'm whispering due to two factors. Number one, I'm in an airport and I'm trying to avoid having uh, people heckle me or other issues. Number two, I've had way too much caffeine. So I'll try to keep this short. Number one, this episode is brought to you by the Tim Ferriss Book Club. I read, eh, let's call it two to four books a week, typically. Out of all of those books over the years, I've highlighted four to six of them that had a huge impact on my life. You can get samples of all of them at audible.com forward slash Tim's books. That's audible.com forward slash Tim's books. And if you'd like a chance to go with me on a private jet to Necker Island, this is the private island of Richard Branson. To spend a week with Richard Branson, with me, with Damon John of Shark Tank, and founder of FUBU, Marie Forleo. Let's see here. Seth Godin will also be there. If you want to spend a week learning lots, there might be some debauchery, you never know, on Necker Island. You can do it and have all of your expenses paid. Check out shopify.com forward slash Tim. That's S-H-O-P-I-F-Y dot com forward slash Tim. And now, on to our guest. My guest is Alexis Ohanian. And Alexis is best known, perhaps, as the co-founder of the social news site Reddit. It is massive, as you probably know. Hitmonk, 
He was in the first ever Y Combinator class. Y Combinator is the best known startup accelerator in the world. Its selectivity is something like combining Harvard with the Navy SEALs. Very hard to get into. Uh, stars that have come out of that include Reddit, Dropbox, and many, many others. He is now a Y Combinator or YC partner, and we're going to talk a bit about that. Good evening, and thank you for and here we go. Blah, 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 blah. So I'll try to keep this. You know what? I'm not going to stop this recording. I'm going to keep going because they never shut up in the airport. So I'm going to take a moment and I'm going to let you listen to some of this. I like this. It's very cinema verite. Okay, you know what? I'm going to keep going. Fuck it. So, Alexis has a lot of stories. I ask him a lot of weird questions, like when is the last time he punched someone in the face, or got punched in the face. And we digress all over the place. We talk about how to spot the next big company, how he chooses companies. We talk about favorite books. We talk about documentaries. We talk about everything. So, without further ado, I would like you to meet Alexis O'Hagan. Thanks for listening. At this altitude, I can run flat out for a half mile before my hands start shaking. Can I answer your personal question? Now it is seen an appropriate time. What if I did the opposite? I'm a cybernetic organism, living tissue over metal endoskeleton. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. This is Tim Ferriss. Welcome to another episode of The Tim Ferriss Show. Thank you for listening. This episode, we have a spectacular, charming, an altogether handsome guest named Alexis Oanian. <laughs> How are you, buddy? It's good to have you on. I'm doing really well. Yeah. Uh, doing, doing very well. Very happy to be here. Thank you, Tim. Of course. And you are in NYC at the moment? I should be. I should be, but I'm actually in Los Angeles. Ah, what are you doing in Los Angeles? I'm, I'm cheating on Brooklyn. Don't tell her. Uh, you know, catching up, catching up with some friends. My grandpa lives here. Mm-hmm. He is uh, 92 years young. And uh, want to spend a little time with him and then doing some press stuff. Got it. Love it. Like this. Well, hopefully this will be the highlight of your L.A. trip. <laughs> oh, yes. Well, it's a shame. It's a shame we're doing this remotely, though. Yeah. But- well, we can. It, it, it makes me feel uh, taller when I'm not standing next to you or even <laughs> seated next to you. You have a very maj- majestic torso. Um, well, see, it, it makes me feel uh, healthier not having to sit next to you. <laughs> uh, I mean, this morning, seriously, I was like, I'm going to do some push-ups this morning. <laughs> Nope. No, no. Went went for some coffee instead. Didn't happen. Well, wait, real talk. Yeah. This is totally random, but you Mm -hmm. said I could ask you questions. Yeah. Is there anything you've learned since four hour body that if you were to do like the addendum or like the like quick update, because I'm, you know, forever a human guinea pig, like what, when it comes down to, have you learned anything particularly new that you would add for, for readers of four hour body, uh, they should be doing physically in order to be as efficiently healthy as possible. I think there would be a few addenda I would add. The first would be on smart drugs, and it would actually be a cautionary tale more than a prescription for smart drug use. I would also outline the the point that sort of Cartesian separation of mind and body is, is very artificial. And if you do a lot of things intended to improve physical performance or that are associated with that, uh, whether that's dietary, say elimination of starches and gluten or taking care of your microbiome. So really looking at the sort of bacterial balance, 
or not even balance, but composition of not just gut, but skin flora, for instance, which I become very fascinated by, you'll improve your mental performance. And related to that, I would probably delve into different types of fasting, which I, I skim the surface of, yeah. uh, as well as a couple of other sort of fringe topics that I've become very, very fascinated by. So I'm, it's funny you should mention that. I'm actually thinking of doing an updated version of the 4-Hour Body with case studies, as well as a few additional chapters on areas that I think are worth exploring. But right on. I think as a side note that push-ups are very, very underrated. I think that if, if you were to just take a few variations of the plank push-ups in different ranges of motion and you had a, say, three to four foot dowel that you could put across two chairs so that you could lay on your back and do basically reverse oh. row, rows, like body weight rows. That's all oh. you That's all you need along with, say, pistols or split squats to, to stay in fantastic shape when you're on the, on the road. You really don't need anything else. Really? I could get cut up? I think so. Well, getting cut up is, is, has more to do with diet. Yeah, mm. I'd say you, you add muscle in the gym, you lose fat in the kitchen or when you choose what you eat. So that's definitely a major piece of the puzzle. But so the, one of the things I've been trying, and I, it's still early, and I don't know if I'm ready to, to start promoting this, but it's the waffle diet. <laughs> that's, and, I, I can see a large market for that. Yeah, and I tell you, man, it's, it, it, I haven't quite seen the results I've been looking for, but it's, <laughs> it makes me happy every time I do it. There's, there's a twinge of remorse. It's the happiness the, diet. But yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I like this. I like this. You could sell a book. I'll, I'll take you. I'll shop you. I'll shop you. I'll shop your waffle <laughs> diet. I will gladly oh, take a portion of that. So for those people who may not be familiar with the, your background, the first thing I'm going to say is Google is your friend. And we've spent time together before. I would really like to explore certain aspects of you and your experience and your projects that perhaps haven't been covered before. Because of course, you have sort of the early days of Reddit, Hipmunk, publishing, being part of the first class of Y Combinator, now being a partner at Y Combinator, the huge bus tour, I guess it was 200 events for, without your permission, your book, internet activism for SOPA, PIPA, net neutrality, et cetera. The list goes on and on and on, including 100 plus startups or so that you've invested in, including uh, at least the very partial list, obviously, Secret, Instacart, Coinbase, Zenefits, Teespring, et cetera. A lot of those areas have been covered in many fantastic interviews and articles, and I don't want to replicate those, uh, but I would like to dig into how you operate and and some of what has allowed you or helped you to do what you've done. And so the the first question I'd love to ask you is one I often ask, but that is when you when you think of the word successful, who's the first person that comes to mind? Hmm. Oh wow. This one. All right. So this is something that. It has, has changed and has evolved over the years. Mm-hmm. You know, at a baseline, I really, this is so cheesy. At a baseline, though, I think of my own parents mm-hmm. for whom success was measured primarily by, by having a happy, loving, awesome family. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I'm the product of all of that hard work and love and all that great stuff uh, that made me who I am. And when I think about it as a, as a businessman, frankly, I... <laughs> I think of people like uh, Oprah and Jay-Z mm-hmm. because if you consider this spectrum of, of let's just say, a business success, mm-hmm. um, you've got to look at where you start on the spectrum and where you're at on the spectrum when you sort of finish. And obviously, they're not finished, but you know where they've arrived at this point. And 
you know, simply because of a, a life lottery ticket, uh, my starting point on that spectrum was a lot further along than Jay's and Oprah's for, for all kinds of, you know, systemic reasons, frankly, beyond any of our controls. Um, and that, that doesn't make my success any less cool. I, I'm very happy with it. But when I look at the entire scope of it, I have to, I have to be in, in awe and be like, holy shit, like that's, <laughs> that's next level success. And then when I think of philanthropy, I mean, you got to think of folks like Gates and Buffett for just being able to say that they're going to take these, this <laughs> tremendous amount of wealth and in their life, especially Gates, become so, so active about finding brilliant ways to, to use it to, to make the world suck less. So it, it, <laughs> it's a spectrum of it. But those are the people who I really look to and think like if only like that's that is a place to uh, strive toward for me. If we were looking at the the opposite end of the spectrum, what are what are some of the things that you fear? Uh, and those don't have to be internal insecurities; they could be externalities. But I mean, what are what are the things that you're afraid of currently? This is I don't want to get too morbid, but I am I am afraid of my own mortality. I mean, I guess everyone is. Who am I kidding? Everyone is. Uh, <laughs> this is not a unique thing. I guess my perspective on it has always been that. Uh, the way I thought about it, even as a little kid, was uh, when you're playing video games, back when video games used to be hard, you would have like a finite number of lives. And and when you're on your last life, it would say zero lives remaining or lives remaining zero, some variant of that. And when you're on your last life in video games, again, when they used to be hard, you played your best because you, you just realized there was nothing left. Obviously, this is just like life, notwithstanding reincarnation. And I had a bunch of events happen to me pretty early in my 20s that really gave me this, really imbued this perspective on me. And I know how fortunate I am to be living the life I'm living. And I'm so grateful for it. And I just want to do as much stuff as possible while I can and while I have my facilities and while I can do stuff. So I'm, I'm only half kidding. I'm not eating a waffle diet. Um, <laughs> but like I'm 31 now, man. And I'm, I'm, like, I'm thinking about things like my health and I'm thinking about how I can be more effective with the time that I have and well-being is a huge part of it. Uh, so that's a very long answer of me just being afraid to be mortal, but get me that, get me that matrix, man. I need my singularity so I can upload. <laughs> well, you know, I think that that actually relates to the next question and that is a question of filtering and selection. So you said doing a ton of stuff, right? But you're at a point and uh, many people let's reach a point where they have a paradox of choice with a, a menu of options they could not possibly exhaust, even if they lived for 300 years, of different things they could yeah. do. And you've invested in a lot of startups. We'll get, we'll get to this, the startup-specific discussion a little bit later, but sure. how do you choose what to say no to, and what are some of the ways that you've learned to say no, as opposed to the like, oh, sorry, I just don't have bandwidth right now, like maybe in three months. And what you really mean is no, but then they follow up in three months and it just snowballs into this chaotic mess. Well, how do you choose what to say no to currently? And how do you, and are there any, any ways that you've found more effective than others to say no? Tim, I was hoping you would tell me this. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I don't know. I was actually just thinking about this this morning. One of the things working with early stage companies again, that was so heartwarming was I remembered back when Steve and I were starting Reddit and like no one knew who we were. No one cared. Like I woke up every morning and I didn't have a bunch of stuff on my calendar. I didn't have a bunch of people who wanted to get coffee. It was just like, I was desperate for anyone to want to talk to me or, or hear about Reddit. <laughs> and I mean, this is a, it, it's a gift and a curse. Obviously I'm in a really fortunate position where my inbox has this, this problem, but yeah, you're right. Like I'm still struggling. You know why it was a 200 event bus tour. It should not have been 200 events in five months. That is crazy. 
but it was because I just kept saying yes to everything. <laughs> and I'm clearly not good at this. This was supposed to be my year of no and <laughs> where I would where the default setting would be no. It's been a lot better. Certainly, you know what it has been, I think, and to actually answer this question, it's really been trying to listen to my gut, my initial impulse, the initial feeling of yes, I it, if I'm not like yes, I am stoked, I absolutely I'm excited, I want to do this. Then it, it's going to be a no, or or it's going to be let me find some other way mm-hmm. to try to be valuable because like at the end of the day, like I want my ideas to scale. I, I think like you, like a lot of people in our position, like there is a genuine interest to want to help folks, uh, and then to also do it in the most efficient way possible, and to realize like, look, twenty minutes with Tim Ferriss might change your life, but I know that twenty minutes with me is probably not actually going to change the trajectory of something, right? Like. This isn't like false modesty. I really just think there have to be more efficient ways to be scaling our knowledge. And I haven't gotten really good at figuring them out yet. But I'm always imploring folks to just to hopefully find in themselves to just sort of realize that it doesn't really come down to one particular person. It doesn't necessarily have to start or end with one particular door that gets open from an email because there are so many possibilities and so many opportunities. And I, I don't know, man. I really... I. I, I need your help with this, Tim. Well, I think just a couple of points there. So the first would Please. be, <laughs> I, I don't think 50 minutes with me will change most people's lives either. It's a hell of a lot of responsibility to feel <laughs> if somebody believes right? that. So you have to disabuse people of that notion, I think. And also, if you are, let's just say, beginning in your career or a new career or a new company, and you want to reach out to someone who is getting deluged with requests, like in Alexis, Asking to pick their brain over coffee without any context is not a good way to do it yeah. uh, because it, that often reflects a lack of focus or forethought on the part of the person making the request. So make a very, very specific request, a question they can answer in a handful of lines that will, in fact, be disproportionately valuable to you. That is, I think, the right place to start. Uh, even more so if you do it in a forum where they can answer one to many, like a blog post, yes. right? That. Because yes. you are more Scale likely it. to answer that and take the yeah. time to give a substantial answer. The second point I was going to maybe refine really is my question. Since you deal with so many startups and you have to be selective, let's just say when you were angel investing, and you may still be angel investing, we'll get to that. When you say no to a company, how do you say no? Because you've had to do this. Mm. You, you yes. can't just string along hundreds of companies. It'll disallow you from doing anything else. How do you typically yeah. say no? What's, what's the language that you use? I mean, I've, I've started a couple companies now. I, it is basically the language I would want to hear. Obviously, the no isn't the part I want to hear. But everything else is, is what I would want to hear if I were a founder. So it's up front, you know, I'm passing. And here's why. In, in a few sentences, if I can fairly concretely say what it was, right? Like I, I just, I don't think you have enough traction yet. I mean, the, the growth numbers that I'm looking for are going to be like double digit week over week or month over month. Like it doesn't seem like the data doesn't show that you guys have found product market fit and try to, or maybe I wouldn't even say product market fit. Cause I feel like that's a buzzword bingo game, but to really as concretely and concisely as possible explain, like, this is why I'm passing and I'm sorry. And, and I do mean this with all sincerity. I really look forward to you proving me wrong. And I really do wish you all the best because I had people who he never got, I didn't name him in the book, but I mentioned the story, like uh, an executive at Yahoo who basically brought me and Steve in 
this is early in Reddit, and told us we were a rounding error because our traffic was so small. We were a rounding error compared to <laughs> Yahoo. And he was like, what are you even doing here? And we're like, you invited us. Like, you brought us here what a dick. to ridiculous. Yeah. And, and so, like, that, and to that guy's credit, he's provided me with so much motivation. Like, that is, he has fueled, I, I put that, put rounding, I put your rounding error on our wall in the Reddit office after that meeting, just as, like, this wall of negative reinforcement for me. And, and so that, that was, that ended up being kind of valuable for me and and helpful. And I still am grateful to this day that he was such a dick because it was so motivating. And, uh, but I don't want to be that guy. You don't want to be the Ivan Drago to the startups coming to you. No. And I, (laughs) and, and saying no is something you have to do a vast majority of the time, uh, as an investor, if you're, if you're going to be successful and I want to be as helpful as possible. And I do genuinely, I will not feel any ill will. I would actually rather a company. We do this at YC. We would rather a company tell us, like on their IPO day, email and just be like, hey, heads up, we applied in you know, summer of 2010 or whatever, and you guys rejected us. Or I'd want them to email and be like, hey, man, you know, we met for coffee six years ago and, and you didn't invest, but I just want you to know we IPO'd. And even if they want to throw a silly little animated GIF in there just making fun of me for missing out, like that's great. I want to know where I got it wrong, so hopefully I can learn from it. And I would bear no entrepreneur ill will for even rubbing it in my face a little bit. But I don't want to be a part of that wall of negative reinforcement, even though sometimes you, well, a lot of the time you have to deliver that kind of bad news. <laughs> Related oh, to, the, go incidentally, ahead. Incidentally, yeah. you made that Ivan Drago reference. Uh, for viewers who can't see me, I guess no one can because it's audio. If you've never seen me before, I look just like Ivan Drago down to the... <laughs> Down to the like ninth, the, the nine pack or ten pack. I guess it's only an even number. <laughs> you have an odd number. Twelve. Just pack. one. So, one no, because it was Soviet. <laughs> just one up at your sternum. It's a nine pack in Soviet <laughs> Russia. Yeah. Perfect. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I know. I mean, you've, you've got the, uh, the the tight red singlet and everything. Yes. For, for those who haven't seen uh, yeah. <laughs> Alexis during his keynotes. <laughs> All right. So switching from the word successful. Whose face pops up when you think punchable? Ray Ray's. <laughs> and you know what? Here's the thing, though. And this is something I feel like in tech, in this little bubble, there aren't enough sports people who are paying attention to this, paying attention to, to sort of sporting life. Um, but this is the one thing, of course, that sort of transcended, you know, and if everybody knows about this story now. And I really do hope, though. It gets because I'm a diehard NFL fan. I love the NFL, and I know this is an extremely violent sport. But what the league has done—I don't want to get all political on this—but what the league has done to cover this up is appalling. And I really hope—I don't know—I really hope some good comes out of this because you know it's offensive. And uh, yeah, Ray Rice is the guy punching the face. Now that you mention it, what kind of punch? I'm curious because you've got a different build. I mean, you'd, yeah. have, you'd you'd have to think it through a little. I've never. Okay, let's get real. I've never hit a person. Maybe I got into some little like stupid kid fights in like elementary school, but I am I'm a lover, not a fighter, Tim. I don't know what I would do. Because I'm I got reach. Ray is not a tall man. Yeah. So I've got the reach on him, but he's obviously much stronger than me. So a cross here's what's sad too. I was named after a boxer. So I'm named after Alexis Arguello, who is the, my dad was really into boxing in the eighties and he's this Nicaraguan fighter, three different titles. Like he was a baller, good mustache too. And I am the exact opposite <laughs> of, of my namesake in terms of fighting prowess. Um, but what do you think? I think elbows. Use elbows. Oh. If, you, if you haven't punched many people, you'll probably break your hand. If you, and uh, wow. Ray, Ray has a thick skull and a big neck. So I'd say <laughs> elbows. Have you been punched 
since yes. high school. When is the been. last time you were punched in the face? Oh man, this was uh, it's the only time I've been punched in the face since then. Uh, and that was walking down 16th and Mission at four in the afternoon, and some random homeless guy punched me in the face. Wow! Just uh, no no warning. Yeah, no, he, we were just walking. You know, he was going one direction, I was going the other direction on the sidewalk, and he's kind of muttering to himself, and he just kind of slugged me. And and I looked at him, and he kept walking by, and I was like, "Why the hell did you do that?" And he, he just looked at me and was like, ah, nah, 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 nah. and I was like, all right, well, kept moving. Yeah, I'm but, not going to get an answer. So. Well, you know, maybe, maybe boxing's in your future. If you took, uh, if you took that and didn't flinch and just asked him why he did it, that's, well, that, that, it, that bodes I mean, well for your burgeoning boxing career. I mean, I'm not, and I'm, I'm I am a tall guy. Uh, so I was just surprised why any, why are you going to pick a fight with me, man? But it wasn't, I mean, let's be clear. It was, and I'm not like, uh, it wasn't nothing. I mean, it was, a. Uh, it was a haymaker. It was a wild, really throwing out the boxing references here. It was a wild kind of punch. It caught me in the, caught me in the cheek. But, uh, you know, that Ivan Drago training obviously paid off. So it, it didn't, didn't hurt me too bad. So it stung. I mean, it stung. This is good to know. Yeah, all right. I won't be throwing any uh, undirected haymakers your way at trade shows or anything. And now that I know you won't go down. Uh, the switching gears completely. If you had the opportunity to give let's just call them entrepreneurs. That doesn't mean venture-backed necessarily. Mm -hmm. Truth. 18, 20 years old, you could give them two or three books or resources. What would those, and, and only two or three, what would, those, what would you give them? Wow, okay. Oh, man. See, you've, got, you've always got the really heady stuff. I, I am going to be... <laughs> the, little, the Little Prince? What are you bringing out? <laughs> no, uh, well, <laughs> I, was, I was thinking of a few amazing uh, scratch-and-sniff books from my childhood, <laughs> Okay, so number one, actually, oh, perfect. So Y Combinator, we're teaching a course at Stanford this semester. Mm -hmm. And we've got some amazing guest professors, all like from the YC Network, just amazing founders, investors, just great people. And it's going to be available to anyone for free. Wonderful. Uh, it'll be podcasted, streamed, all that good stuff. So everyone should sign up right now and, and take that class at Stanford. You don't have to, how can uh, they, you don't how, have to pay how, Stanford tuition. How can they find it? What's the name? Oh man, hold on. It's called How to Start a Startup. If you Google right. How to Start a Startup Class Stanford, you should be able to find it. I am terrible with my plugs. Beautiful. Uh, and Pe then people can find it. That's good they'll enough. Find, they'll be good with the internet. If you can't find it, you probably shouldn't take the class because <laughs> you're probably not good enough with the internet to search for it. Um, yeah, it's CS183 Bravo, How to Start a Startup. So that's the class. Silicon right. Valley, right there, all in your brain, wherever you are in the world. That's one for sure. Got to give a shout out to uh, Jessica Livingston, who is uh, one of the founders of Y Combinator, the partner who basically saved me and Steve. We were, we were rejected from the first batch of YC, and it was her input. She basically pounded the table and said, their idea is terrible, but I like them, so we're going to let them in. I didn't know that. Yeah, and Jessica's she, great. She's wonderful. She's amazing. And PG was like, all right, all right, okay, all right, we'll do it. <laughs> And yeah, yeah. Thanks. Thanks, PG. Uh, but uh, <laughs> that worked out for YC. It worked out well for them. Yeah. yeah. The first uh, company to launch and obviously the first uh, sort of exit. And But anyway, Jessica wrote a great book called Founders at Work, which has been around for a while. And it's just a bunch of really great interviews she did with a bunch of just OGs of entrepreneurship. I am begging her to do a second book because the first one is such a, just a, a must read. And then the final one is the book that inspired me and Steve to, well, let's say one of the, it's probably the, yeah, I'd say it was the book that inspired us to, if not start a company, well, kind of, it was, it was, 
it was really inspiring us to start a video game company, which didn't quite work out. Uh, but it was called Masters of Doom, and it was the founding of id Software. We were huge gamers. It was one of the things we bonded over. I was a much better Quake 2 player than Steve. Let me just make that clear. He was a little better at Half-Life, but I just want to say I was much better at Quake 2. And it was amazing because those guys, you know, John Carmack and Romero and, and the crew didn't have any funding. You know, they pioneered an entire industry. They created a genre, right? First-person shooters. And all with, you know, shareware, all with a business model that was still very nascent. And, and they, they were just kind of hacking it. And they created this amazing empire. And it made us think, and Steve, Steve had, had lent it to me my sophomore year. And, and it really made us think, well, you know, if these guys could do it, like, why can't we? And uh, yeah, that was, that was the big three. And actually, that was the big impetus for my own uh, book, just because like, I don't know, man, I, in nine years in the game of startups, nine, 10 years, which is still not a ton of experience, but in the last 10 years, like, it's just, I still am just amazed by the founders I get to meet who make me feel like I was such an amateur uh, <laughs> when I was in their position. And that's good. That makes me feel good. It makes me feel like we're, we're all making progress here. But it also just is a, a sense to – it's one of those things in terms of like dispelling you know, young founders of this notion that like you or I or, or the people they might look at and be like, yeah, they've really, they've really got their shit figured out. They really, you know, they're really cooking with bacon. We're, we are still figuring it out. Like we're all still hacking it and we've made tons of mistakes and, and we are no different. Uh, some of us may be you know, a little stronger some of us may have some international titles in martial arts, but like at the end of the day, we're, we're no different. And that's, that's something I really want to get in people's heads as early as possible to not hold them back. Well, I, I, it makes me think of a quote and I'm paraphrasing here, but from Jack Ma of Alibaba, which is yeah. you know, slated to, or expected to be the largest tech IPO in history. And I'm not even sure if I need the modifier tech. I mean, it's going to be one of the <laughs> largest IPOs in yeah. history. And he said, you know, in the beginning we had, a huge advantage and that was we had no money, no experience and no plan. And I, and I think when you, when you don't know what you don't know in a way, obviously there are risks, but when you're not aware that what you're trying to do is impossible, then very often you actually pull it off. So there Truth, is, there right? is an advantage to that. Do you read any fiction? Any, do you have any favorite fiction books? Oh man, I have not read. I have not read fiction in a minute. It's mostly nonfiction. I'm trying to the last Oh, the last fiction I read, uh, I can't admit to Fifty Shades of Grey on your podcast, so <laughs> let's see, it would be, oh man, this is really, this is really bad, uh, last piece of fiction I have read, it's been a long time, I didn't, right. I didn't even read Harry Potter. I didn't either, that's okay. Which I know some people, some people will contest is nonfiction, uh, but uh, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Man, if it doesn't okay, come to mind, yeah, no, that's all right. If if nothing comes to mind, nothing comes to mind. That's I'm that. gonna check my Goodreads account or my uh, Amazon to see if there. <laughs> Man, do you have any particular morning or evening ritual, or just uh, patterns in, say, how you spend the first hour of your day or two hours of your day? What is that? And it could be a weekly thing. It could be that you spend Mondays doing A and Wednesdays doing. Be anything like that, but I, I find that people usually have certain patterns and rituals. I have a sort of a way that I go about, say, doing meditation and then having tea and then whatever. But what does the first say hour or two of your day tend to look like, dude? Real quick, what do you think? I, I downloaded Headspace mm -hmm. because I, I don't know if you could tell me this is correlation or causation, but after I got back from Burning Man, 
<laughs> I, I had I had it planted in my head that I should really try meditation, mm-hmm. uh, which is not something I do at all, and and have have never done. But I'm intrigued by. It. So we're gonna have to. I want to talk about that. But I, my morning ritual is waking up, feeding my cat, and making coffee. When do you wake up? If I'm not forcing myself to exercise, it is whenever I wake up, okay. which is amazing. I stay. I usually stay up probably later than I should, but I wake up whenever I kind of wake up. And that tends, and, tends to be before oh, right. before noon. Yeah, <laughs> ten like around ten. Okay, ten eleven. Yeah, depending on the night. And uh, yeah, feed my cat, and then I'm a real I I the hand grinder. We were talking about this on the Twitter. So I got I got broke down and got one of these hand grinders because it makes me feel like I'm closer to my coffee beans as I grind them. And it's it's like I'm trying to get workouts in where I can, Tim. So my right bicep, incidentally, is huge. You're like a pincher crab. You got like a heat. You got a battle arm. It's good. Yes. Yeah. All for grinding coffee. And uh, I got my little craft coffee subscription and I plow it out, make a little French press. Oh, it's great. And then usually, you know, I'll mess around, check out the front page of Reddit, obviously. And uh, although I have been checking out a little bit of product hunt lately and just like, I don't know, I, I just kind of get into get into my zone. I start prioritizing what I want to do that day. And this is something I've had to be really disciplined with mm-hmm. where I'll actually, usually on Evernote, sometimes I'll write it down when I'm feeling like a pilgrim, when I want to go old school and like get up my quill pen and I'm like, yeah. Thing, major things to do today. <laughs> and And really try to make sure I get those covered by the end of the day because I get into this work creep where I start knocking off really easy stuff, like the things I shouldn't, re- like I don't really need to do, but I can get a little bit of uh, mojo, a little bit of endorphin rush. And before I know it, it's usually like noon or one o'clock and I still haven't showered. So then I'll go do that and, uh, <laughs> and then carry on my day. Usually it's office hours with companies or whatever stuff might be lined up. It's a very undisciplined morning. And my evenings are, this is why I need more Tim Ferriss in my life, man. I <laughs> I, should I be should I be meditating in the evening or should I be doing it in the morning? Here's my take on that. Uh, yeah. my, my take on meditation is that the less you feel you can afford the time to meditate, the more you need to meditate. So I had Russell Simmons say to me once, he said, if you don't feel like you have 30 minutes to meditate, you need three hours to meditate. So you strike me as a pretty zened out calm guy, which <laughs> means you may need meditation or benefit. The delta in improvement might be less than for someone who's hardwired to be hmm. sort of neurotic and super tightly wound like I am. But I find that meditating first thing in the morning before almost anything, and then ideally again mid to late afternoon is the ideal split. But realistically, if I set it up so that the pass-fail requires me to meditate twice a day to pass, then I'll just quit altogether, like a lot of things. And I think mm. you, wanna, you want to make it easy to win the game in the beginning. So for me, I meditate 5 to 20 minutes almost every morning. And I find that to be the ideal spacing. I think Headspace is great. I think Calm Dot com also is a competitor to Headspace is also fantastic. Uh, okay. I, I meditate without guided meditation and uh, typically approach it from a transcendental meditation standpoint, although I'm very interested Whoa. in Vipassana. So tm.org for people who want to check it out. I think it's very valuable, but I, I do suspect that the more tightly wound you are, the less you feel you can afford taking 10 to 30 minutes to meditate, the more you actually need it. <laughs> Fair, fair. So, you know, if, if you're uh, sort of uh, rolling with your Buddha nature and 
like admiring the irises of your cat while it's chowing on its <laughs> fancy feast. Wait, did you just call me fat because of my Buddha nature? <laughs> no, I no, I'm talking about very proud of that. I'm talking about like collegiate sports <laughs> Buddha when he was doing the pole vault, very svelte, similar, oh, yeah. similar look. Not a lot of people know about that. that yeah, it's, it's not yeah. not not written about a lot. But yeah. um, the uh, so that, that that's my take on on the meditation. When do you feel no. you are most productive. So when do you Ooh. sort of hit your stride? So in other words, yeah. people think of, they often ask me like, what does your average day look like? Right. Or journalists will want to follow me for a day. And I almost never do it because it would be extremely boring and they would come away <laughs> writing an article that is something along the lines of like, wow, this guy, I don't know if he works four hours per week <laughs> at all, because he seems to get, even when he's attempting to work next to nothing done. And you're able to get some really outsized results and returns from the things that you've put in your mind to. So it, it would lead one to sort of conclude that it's not about how much stuff you do, but how well you do a handful of things. And so my question to you is like, what is the most kind of professionally valuable time in your day? Like when you're, you're sort of hitting your stride. Yeah. What are those hours? What are and you know like? that feeling. I love yeah. that feeling, man. It is, it is such a drug. There's this, what's the flow. They've written books on this stuff. That is my crack. Mm-hmm. Like it is so incredibly addictive. And I, again, this is part of why reason I feel so fortunate to be able to do the stuff I do, man. Cause if it's with people, okay. So if it's, if it's solo stuff, if this is, you know, I'm mapping out, Oh, I'm mapping out this podcast I want to do, or I'm helping. I had already talked to a startup and I was helping them build out a, a launch strategy. But now it's like Alexa's time where I'm going to sit down in front of a blank Google Doc and start typing. Mm-hmm. When I don't need to interact with other human beings, my go time is, is once the sun sets, I've always felt like basically like the internet kind of calms down so my distractions are fewer right. and more people are asleep so I don't think about checking the inbox and falling into that trap. And all the way, pretty much once the sun sets, all into the like wee hours of you know one, two in the morning. This is now harder to do because I have a uh, girlfriend, of course, who apparently doesn't love the idea that I might spend, you know, say a Saturday night sitting in front of a computer from seven p.m. until two in the morning. <laughs> but this is life, and it's it's the balancing. And uh, but that's that's definitely when I get the solo time going. And I'll tell you though, you know, I do. I, I tend to stagger office hours, whether it's with YC companies or portfolio companies. Every, like, say, 20, 30 minutes in the late afternoon because I feel like, well, you know about what time I get up in the morning. So morning's pretty much done. And there is this stride that I will find myself getting into because I'm just enough of an extrovert that uh, it's like, all right, lunch is behind. Like, this is – everyone's got their second coffee in them or or what have you. And it's just a good time to be talking through startup problems, having these kinds of office hours with companies – but again, like you, it's really not interesting. And I would, oh man, I'd feel really bad for someone who had to watch that for an entire day because it's just, it, it's such a, I don't know, it, 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 to your point, like the, you could sit there, whether it's me alone in front of a computer for five hours or, or going through a, like five hours office hour sessions, there are a few moments where, holy shit, we hit on something and there's something great here. And there are like, there's a way to turn this into something special. And, and that was a valuable use of the time. But it's not like there was any clear indication of, oh, that was the instance it was going to happen. It just happens. Uh, I wish I could just push a button and have great shit come out on demand. <laughs> don't, but, we, don't we all? Right? It's, uh, but you just don't know. So those office hours, how do you schedule office hours currently? Mm, so thanks to 
amazing software that engineers at YC, actually originally Paul Graham built. Basically, any portfolio company can come in and request office hours with any one of the partners. And so we as partners schedule blocks of time. So we just block off whatever, you know, four hour, five hour chunks in a day or whatever, one hour chunks in a day when we're available for office hours, just like, you know, back at college. And uh, startups can slot in to take those times and either show up and do kind of like an assembly line. Uh, I mean, it's not that <laughs> soulless, um, but do that kind of setup. It's not literally on an assembly line at a cafe or at a YC or over Skype. I've got notes ahead of time based on you know previous meetings we've had, and they've got their latest sort of issues and stuff that help me prepare. And uh, we just get to it and start talking about whatever they're working on. Do you prefer to batch let's just say pre-YC or outside of YC, Y Combinator for people who may not be keeping track. Do you prefer to have one day or two days blocked out for say a four or five hour block of time or do you prefer to spread it out so that you have an hour or, or two per day, say Monday to Friday? Uh, no, I, I definitely prefer the former. I think when it involves people, it's much better for me to just get it all in one burst, right. in one four or five hour chunk. Whereas if it's like, solo work or, or with a sort of limited team and it's over, you know, email and all the kinds of other things. I don't mind the, um, what's the method where you work for 45 minutes and then you're, you're messing around on Reddit for 20 minutes and then you work for 40 minutes. Uh, well, there is one called the Pomodoro technique, which there is, you go. which is usually yeah, a lot of people talk about 23 minute increments, but some people, oh, I was some, way off. but some people, but some people <laughs> double that. <laughs> <laughs> but like, so I, I'm not saying I'm actually, I'm obviously not a student of the, uh, Pomodoro technique. That's right. Uh, but uh, but I find myself falling into that kind of a cycle when it doesn't involve something as interactive as office hours. Cool. No, I, I'm always fascinated by how people batch tasks or not. In my case, I'm the same way. I prefer to have a large block of time sectioned out for one type of task so that my I don't have the cognitive fatigue of, of switching back and forth. For those people who don't have access to Y Combinator software, uh, I've been using something called Schedule Once, which is meetme.so, and that allows people to schedule for a block of time that you make available. It's really helpful. It was uh, first introduced to me by uh, Andrew Warner of Mixergy, who schedule, oh, yeah. ha has scheduled hundreds, probably thousands of interviews at this point, and it's been fantastic. Uh, when you meet with these startups is there any agenda? Do you ask for anything in advance? Are there particular types of questions that you routinely ask them? Mm. How do you make those sessions most productive, yeah. I guess, is the yeah. overlying question. You know, I, I like to come into the meeting with a sense of how, like a general sense of how the company is doing. So things like growth, uh, things like, if at all possible, like the big looming, you know, every founder has, there's a million things that they could be working on. But what is the big focus for the coming week? What are the one or two big things that you're considering, worried about, wondering? And then also just even notes from our previous meeting. And that's sort of, fortunately, that's sort of built into the software. Other times I'll just hack it with Evernote just for my own sort of sanity, uh, just to kind of keep up and, and have a sense of things. But I find more often than not, office hours are less about me saying, aha, here it is. This is what you shall do. And more about me asking questions and, and being skeptical and giving them feedback that they may not hear just because, right, you're obsessing over a, a company. You're obsessing over solving a problem. You have this kind of tunnel vision. Uh, and and it, it helps to have someone just to gut check you 
and make sure that you're asking yourself the questions you may not be thinking of simply because you're so intently focused. And a lot of it comes down to just basically holding up a mirror at the right time and being like, like, are you really focused on getting users like you say you are? Or have you been doing the exact same thing for the last three weeks and haven't actually adapted it to the fact that it has an improved conversion? The founders that I see succeeding down the road. And you could go back and I've been lucky enough, right? I was in the first batch of YC with Steve. So I've seen, I remember when Drew Houston was the, the founder of Dropbox was the guy who like, he came to some of our open events and he was working on this SAT prep software, uh, which was just a dead end startup. Uh, and, and, and I remember the Airbnb guys when they showed up and like, we all thought, oh, this is really cool. Like, you know, hope it works out. <laughs> we weren't thinking, oh, right. In five years, they will be, you know, have more rooms than Hilton. But I've seen so many of these companies now get started and the founders who tend to do well are, are overwhelmingly the ones who during office hours don't just take feedback and they push back, right? Every founder has to be determined and stubborn, right? You know, she has to think that she's going to win, that we just have to delude ourselves. But a great founder, she also realizes that she can be that stubborn and that determined, but also adaptive and flexible. And so that founder comes out of office hours and then two weeks later or a week later or whenever the next session is, not only has tested all the things we sort of talked about or launched or done or whatever, but also tried three other things and also comes back with a whole other things that they've learned and, and really challenged every one of her hypotheses along the way. And that's, it's an easy thing to talk about. It's a hard thing to do and it's a hard thing to teach. That's the other crazy thing is like, Dude, I mean, I think part of the reason entrepreneurship is so so hot right now, and, and especially voices like yourself, I think the reason people are so interested by it is because there's never really been a modern curriculum for it. There's been, you can read the old case studies and all the MBA nonsense, but like there are a lot of people right now who are hacking it as entrepreneurs, and there isn't a lot of a blueprint for it. And if you've grown up pretty much anywhere, I think in the country, you probably didn't get exposed to this kind of curriculum in, in schooling because a lot of it's still being written right now. A lot of it can't even be written because we're still writing it. And I think that's why there's such this, this such an appetite and a hunger for it and why so many people are very quickly becoming sort of authorities on it. But a lot of what we do is really just saying like, hey, look, the brilliant idea is not necessarily going to come from us. We're just going to help you get there through these kinds of principles and practices and these sort of methodologies. It's a good cop-out. <laughs> we don't actually have to have all the answers. <laughs> well, I think that, and this is true in writing, it's true in teaching, it's true in many areas. Uh, having the right questions is more important than having the right answers because you can have the right answer to a bad question. So I think that it's it's very important to have the ability to formulate the right questions that get to the crux of the matter, right? And uh, in office hours, just to pull out some concrete details in addition to what we already covered, what are some ways in which you challenge founders or express skepticism in a constructive way? Like, What, what would be some examples of that? Well, I really think a lot can be conveyed with a raised eyebrow. It's something, something I've really... I don't want to brag about, but I'm really good at. What are some good ways? It's it would be. I mean, I don't want to. I can't call it specific companies. You know what this is? I will say. Side note: This is incidentally a, a section I'm doing on this uh, on the the podcast, uh, so people will actually get to hear me doing this with real people. But notwithstanding actually being able to magically pull a clip out of my butt, it would be. What's the kind of thing? Like, all right, I have this company. We're selling a subscription. It's a subscription widget service. 
and they might tell me about growth rates. And let's say this is a very early stage company. And they're telling me about the growth rates. Like, we're growing to 50% week over week. And I'm like, well, that's, that's awesome. All right, where's that growth coming from? And again, this is where you get these different shades of this, right? Some founders will tell you, okay, well, 25.3%, maybe not to the 10th place, but like 25% <laughs> is, is uh, coming from paid advertising. Uh, 50% is coming uh, organically. Another 25 is coming from some other thing. Um, and you get other founders who, who might be a little cagey at first. And they're like, uh, you know, it's, it's a variety of things. And it's like, well, come on. No, you're, this is your company. You, have, you, have, you need to know this. And then you dig a little deeper and it turns out that like, let's say a majority of it, like a significant majority of it is coming through paid. And so, you know, founders can fall into this very seductive trap where, aha, you know, money out and, and money in, like, as long as we can just keep paying for it, like, don't worry, we can have enough traction to sort of get a seed round of funding one day. And it becomes a really seductive thing in an early stage company and a kind of foolish one because you still, you, you've kind of deluded yourself into thinking that you have demand where you don't actually and as someone who, I mean, whether it was early stage Reddit or early stage Hitmonk, like we didn't have budget for any ads. Like it was also more important that we showed that we had built a real product people wanted, that people were actually willing to talk about it. And in an age of abundance, when it comes to social media, you've got no excuses. Like if you focused obsessively on making something people want, you will have natural, you know, organic, you will have people just talking about it. You will start to see growth coming from social channels. You will start seeing growth come just organically to your domain. It's not like up. That's all you have to do. If you start with focusing on making an amazing product that people just love and they want to talk about, you're building a much better foundation for your company than we're just going to get a product out the door, subscription widgets, it's going to work, and then buy a ton of Google ads or whatever the, or Twitter ads, whatever the next cool thing is and artificially build that house or that business on top of something before you've actually proven that you've really made something people want. Yeah, there you oh, go. Oh, sure. Well, de- no, no, definitely. I mean, I think that a lot of folks will use paid acquisition and they'll have a fancy landing page with email capture that promises the world when no one's actually tried it yet. And they use the uh, signups as sort of the week-on-week growth number. And it's it can be really delusional. I mean, if I look at the... And I'm going to ask you a very similar question, but if I look at the companies that I've invested in or advised that have done the best, they almost always will take a dollar and put it into product development rather than put it into PR marketing. And there are some exceptions, but if you look at, say, Evernote or, uh, I mean, Uber's in a, in, <laughs> pretty well. Uber's had a lot of wars, so they have, they have, uh, <laughs> they, have they, a, they have a war chest budget. Yeah, for, they have uh, a war chest budget espionage. now for uh, a lot of, uh, you know, aggressive advertising, but for a long time it was product and it still is product, product, product at the the end of the day, because the switching costs are so low in a lot of respects. Shopify, very similar. The paid acquisition came after the product had been refined over a longer period of time. I've been sort of uh, criticized even by some VCs, although in retrospect, it's kind of funny given how well or poorly some of their funds have done. Because my my investing thesis, if you want to call it that, is very simple. It's, can I be a power user of this product? Is the market large? Can I drive, say, you know, 100,000 users to this service or product? And 
do, does my audience and the reach I have overlap with their target market, right? It's very simple. And for the most part, that's sort of how I've approached it. And when I've deviated from that and tried to invest in some cutting edge biotech company that's going to have to contend with things that I don't understand very well, like FDA approvals and phase trials and whatever, that's usually when I get kicked in the balls really hard. Um, <laughs> Can the Tim Ferriss army not help with FDA approval? <laughs> you know, maybe, maybe on some level, maybe I'm not, you know, fine slicing yeah, it enough. Tell them, sure. <laughs> but what are the commonalities that, and I'm going to qualify it, but what are the commonalities that the revenue generating successes are that you've invested in? So I can't promise that kind of a sort of instant user base. But one of the things that I see, these companies all find ways pretty early on in their business to and this is make money. And I realize this is uh, a bit ironic coming from the guy who started Reddit. Um, but hey, look, we learned this lesson with Hitmonk because we made money on day zero. And that was important because we learned how much stronger of a position you're in if you actually make revenue from the first day. Mm -hmm. And they, they knew pretty clearly what their goal was, like how, how they were going to be making money. And we see this you know, I think about this now, you know, I, I've, I've pretty much hung up the investor. I, now it's all, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not wearing my Y Combinator outfit, but I still have my YC tattoo. And so I don't actually have a YC tattoo. And, and you know, I think about it as I'm sitting there in the, the interview room for Y Combinator, I'm thinking, all right, if this company has already not just shown traction, right, there's not only just signups, there's not only just users coming back every day, they've actually got people paying money for this thing and really have an understanding of this market I guess that's the thing I like. They, they are seeing something that everyone else hasn't quite gotten yet. And it's something that personally resonates with me. And an example would be, oh, okay, so Teespring. So Teespring was an immediate, like as soon as, as soon as the application started going around, I was giddy because I had done t-shirts for like three or, I, no, at that point, maybe eight years, right? I started with Reddit, did all the merch stuff for us there, Hitmonk, all the merch stuff. And then even uh, BreadPig, we did all this merch stuff. And we had actually spun up our own janky version of Teespring just because, you know, Kickstarter had sort of changed people's perception about pre-ordering and this idea of like scarcity being brought to merchandise was amazing because it made a t-shirt even more valuable because it felt special, one of a kind. And you had this immediacy, you need to buy it before it runs out. And then it also combined that with the fact you didn't need to have inventory anymore. And this was something that I fundamentally, I knew this because I had triple extra large shirts just lying around the apartment <laughs> from like five years ago, like these Reddit shirts that like I just could not unload because it was a random skew. And this just happened to be a problem for me that I knew personally in an industry that's not very sexy, right? Oh, swag, like printing stuff on a shirt. Like how, we, we've seen a lot of different varieties of this, but they had built this platform so thoughtfully and it appealed to me in a way that like I got instantly just because of my own experience and we're you know generating revenue and, and clearly had built something people wanted uh, from really early on so I will I will uh, admit I, I believe I have one of your teespring t-shirts Huzzah! Uh, bring in the nerds <laughs> so awesome I, so I yes. uh, those guys are really impressive I've spent on a few occasions some time with the Teespring guys very impressive team dude Tim what uh, are we gonna get we should have you not run a Teespring campaign I haven't yet brother dude I know I know What's I got take I gotta get on it well I've been thinking about it a lot so that is that is pending I've been not to take this into the, the I'm gonna buy your shirt I mark my words <laughs> right now everyone as my witness 
I'll be the first person to buy your Teespring shirt. I'm going to make... I don't care what it says. I'm going to make a camouflage, long, slender, sort of gap kids small for you with <laughs> with a snap button for the crush so you can oh, man. so it's a, a onesie it'll be a you, you can't unsee that Tim. <laughs> uh, i don't want to do that no i'm very very impressed by those guys <laughs> and uh, i mean really what's what's been sort of delaying a lot of stuff like that that i'd like to do is i've been busy sharpening saying, no. sh- <laughs> saying the, shar- sharpening the saw as it relates to my own blog mailing list, redesigning mobile slash responsive versions for the site. Just basically getting all of the architecture and armature ready for a bunch of big things that I want to do so that the the, the net, so to speak, for conversion is much tighter mesh. See, and that's why, dude, Tim, I love, like, I don't know when that switch got flipped for you, but you were such a maven for that. Like, when did that happen? Uh, you know, I, it's it was very... Oh, that's a good. You were ahead of the game, and you were not in Y Combinator, so I can't take credit for that. <laughs> <laughs> well, you can take credit for it anyway. But uh, <laughs> I think it really hit me in very late 2006, early 2007, when I started experimenting on WordPress and started the blog, and pretty much immediately saw the possibilities, even if. I lacked the technical training and expertise. So I don't have a, I don't have a computer science background, but I remember something very early on that influenced me. And I, I'm pretty sure it was Robert Scoble, who was very helpful in the early days and mm-hmm. continues to be a friend. But he said to me, good content is the best SEO. And I had, I had been so preoccupied with search engine optimization and tags and metadata and all of this stuff that I've realized is extremely trivial compared to putting out good content that other influencers are happy, in fact, eager to share with their audiences. Mm, and yeah. once the blog started to take on, and it was hideous in the beginning, it was so ugly. People can search, you know, first blog, Tim Ferriss, and find this hideous, like fluorescent blue and yellow monstrosity Oof. that I put together. But over time, just have continued to create a back catalog of evergreen content that doesn't really expire in terms of relevancy. So I now have 550 some odd live posts, the vast majority of which still receive a ton of traffic. So I think that that was really the the starting point for figuring out how to use content as an Archimedes lever to attract very specific types of audience. So for instance, I'll sometimes write posts that I know will only appeal to maybe 10,000 of the you know, 1.5 2 million monthly readers that I have. And I'll do that specifically as a honeypot, basically, to attract expertise that I want to have contact with. So I might write about some weird aspect of like derivatives finance, or I'll, I'll put up a, a tweet or a post about someone in the hedge fund world that I find very interesting, like Seth Klarman, for instance, uh, or Renaissance oh, yeah, Technologies, Seth. or any of these guys, and I'll see who responds or who reaches out to me, and I'll use the comments as a way to develop my thinking around that subject, which allows me then to write something later that will appeal to a million people about a fringe subject area that not many people know about. Uh, oh, so, that's good. Yeah, so it's it's been uh, it's been pretty fascinating. Um, but yeah, Teespring, I'm looking forward to doing a bunch of stuff with. Here's a um, question I've been dying to ask you, which is related to questions. If you could never sit down with the YC companies as they're coming in, and I guess the YC class is around what 170 accepted companies at the at the moment. I mean, somewhere around there. Oh, I, I don't you mean know. In, like all time? 
Or no, in, no, in a I, batch. In a batch. I mean, oh, no, dude, 170, man, that'd be that'd be a lot. No, we had like uh, 70. 70, okay. 70 companies. All right, I knew there was a 70. All right, <laughs> sorry, I was, I was tagging a one on there. So you have 70 companies coming in. Yeah. If you could only choose five of those, and again, I'm, I'm, I know this isn't how it's formatted, but mm-hmm. uh, if you could only choose five of those to invest in personally, mm-hmm. and the only way you could interact with, the, with these companies was sending them no more than 10 questions each, what would some of those questions be? Whoa. Okay. And these are the 10 questions I will use to decide whether or not to invest. That's right. You have to invest in, yeah. let's just call it 10% of the people who get accepted. Got it. Uh, what are the questions? What are some of the questions you might ask? Oh, wow. Whew. Okay. This is bad because I'm really tempted to think about the questions on the application. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I've seen because- some pretty hilarious ways that people rehearse for the, <laughs> yeah. you know, well, for the interviews that the application I haven't seen recently, but there was this, I remember at some point that they had this, this simulator, which would throw up questions common in YC interviews. And then if you gave a poor answer, there was a, it wasn't a, an animated GIF exactly, but it was like a picture of Paul Graham that would then shoot fire out of its mouth. Uh, no, he does that. Yeah. <laughs> so, but, but you can choose that you're absolutely allowed to ask questions on the application form. Absolutely. Yeah. And, uh, so that's, that's really, that's a really good, the form has been, uh, refined over the years and it's, it's really good. I think, okay. So 10, I, I don't know if I can keep count, but okay. What no, you favorites? don't have to keep 10. That's just me trying to give a good question. Uh, <laughs> one of the favorites that's not on the application anymore is how are you and your founders animals describe it? And and I guess it got dropped because it's it's kind of obscure and a little weird, right? How does one describe that? I say and we're not asking for spirit animals, though I do love asking that question. So maybe I would put that on mine. But I remember when Steve and I filled it out, I'll never forget Steve had a really good quip. It was animals question mark. I guess I could have just said that with my voice. Let's try that again. <clears throat> Gotta work on my voice acting. Animals? We're a freaking zoo. And I was like, well done, Steve. Let's keep going. This is good. Uh, and we, we just talked about how the projects we've been working on in college just for giggles, right? The stuff outside of assigned work, the stuff we were doing just because we enjoyed learning and being curious and, and making things. That's the kind of X factor that I find in successful founders. They, they, they are curious for just the sake of it. They are They are hungry to learn and try new stuff and challenge themselves. And it's weird. I know there are certain things where I am not, let's say, that curious or ambitious or hungry, right? Like physically, for instance. Still working on that. <laughs> not like waking up in the morning trying to optimize my kettlebell exercises. But when it comes to learning about stuff and making stuff, I definitely find that in me. And I, I see it in a lot of successful founders in, in all kinds of different forms, right? It could just be learning about 14th century tapestries, uh, right? But like having shown that you have this hunger to learn and to do is generally a good sign. And then, you know, the other, the kind of expected stuff with like, well, okay, so obviously you're going to want to see the growth stuff. That, that's kind of, that, that basically gets you in the door. Well, let's, let's drill into that though. Are we looking yeah. at week on week growth? Cause I mean, there, there are ways to fake that, right? So, oh, what, yes. so what would the qual a lot of ways? So what would the qualifying BS detector add on to that be? You know, like, all right, what's, what's your week on week growth? I mean, people can fake that in all sorts of yeah. ways. So how do you, how do you separate the bullshit from the, the real deal? If it's just a, a, an email set of questions, yeah, if it's just email, cause it's funny, a lot of this stuff starts to come out a lot easier in, in person interviews. Cause you can ask the next question about, you know, how much of that is organic and, and start to see a little squirm. That could be part of a multi-part question. Are you, are you squirming right now? As I ask you this question, <laughs> no, the, uh, 
but it also the growth question can also be thought about as all right okay then then you start looking at things like well all right let's have have you done like say a cohort analysis have you actually taken a look to see you know the users who have been around for 3 months like what are they still doing today right how many people you know these growth numbers are great how many times are they actually opening the app or how many times per month are they ordering a widget or whatever the the applicable thing is there's a way to get a little deeper in the numbers that's almost the baseline right that's the kind of thing right. that gets you in YC the thing that gets me Guess personally really excited is also sort of to talk to the Teespring reference or even oh another one would be like Patreon. That was something where they, the founders, were building something and knew something about the how the world was going to be that everyone else hadn't yet. And it just so happened that because of my own experience, I'd been I've been working with a bunch of web comic artists for years through Red Pig, XKCD, Saturday Morning Breakfast Serial. And uh, even a couple musicians like Lester Chambers helping him with a Kickstarter. And I knew that what artists in the new world wanted was not just a way to try a one-time project like on Kickstarter, Indiegogo, but to actually have recurring revenue. Like being an artist is no longer binary now. It's not starving artist or successful. It's actually like you can make three grand a month making acapella video game theme song music videos from your apartment in Oklahoma, which is actually a guy on Patreon, Smooth McGroove. The founders like in the Teespring example, had seen something. So I guess the question would be, what, what have you seen, what are you doing that the world or that everyone else doesn't yet realize is a really big fucking deal? And I guess, we actually, I think we have a question kind of like that on the application, but that's the one that really gets me going, especially if it overlaps with something that I personally really get. And that's part of the reason why, and I see this in a lot of great investors. Uh, I know this is like, uh, as you just actually talked about with some of your blog posts, like I think... Being an investor is is like <laughs> it gets way more credit than it deserves. But I think good investors are ones who are intellectually curious and who want to learn about new stuff and and you know be able to say that they've had at least some serious interaction or experience with a variety of industries and people and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. And and so that's me just trying to optimize for more moments where I can kind of like Jedi mind meld with another with a startup that's working on something in industry that I don't necessarily understand as well as they do not as fundamentally because I'm not solving that problem but have enough experience with to be like yes got it I see this is absolutely where the world is heading and you are in the best position possible and you're the, the best team possible to to bring this idea to fruition in that new world no I, I that makes perfect sense I th- you think it's it's also a close cousin of uh, the Peter Thiel's you know what do you believe that other people don't believe or what what commonly held truth do you believe to be oh, yes. false you know that type of stuff Mr. Contrarian over there Mr. Contrarian oh, yeah. uh, he's, he's a smart he's a smart cookie very good investor what other questions would you ask again keeping in mind that you're not going to be able to sit there and watch him squirm for an hour but this is yeah. cold Hal 2000 or was that the name oh. of the computer you just just uh, just just yeah. questions in an email it would be oh you know what I do ask this is one uh, that I love asking so I'm all oh it's Hal 9000 I googled that I did not know damn that. it all right uh, sorry no no so, that's all right sorry Dave so <laughs> I really 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 love building brands that people love I know that gets really eye rolly where it's like oh right building brands like I don't know it's a new flavor of Pepsi yeah it's this new brand like but. <laughs> But what's so cool now, and you're, you're a great example of this, like because of all these tools we have to interact with people in real time at scale, it is possible to build these experiences, build relationships between your users or your fans or whatever on a much smaller budget in a way that we've just never seen before. And a lot of what I think carried Reddit and Hitmonk 
was that, you know, Steve and I in the product that we built and the way that we engaged with our users really obsessed over creating an experience that we thought was special that made people go like, whoa, uh, made them laugh sometimes because we have like jokes in the error messages, that kind of thing. And I asked people for an example of something that they've done. What have you built into your product? Give me an example of something you've built into your product or your service that you're especially proud of that is one of these touch points for someone to like, to just go, wow, or, or feel this sense of like, whoa, like we're still using robots in there, right? We're still using a computer that is soulless or an iPhone that may look nice, but is devoid of soul. And if you can inject this life into your software, into the copy or into the whatever, you can connect with people in a way. I mean, people still fucking tweet about error messages on Hitmonk. And it's an error message. Like, why are they doing that? Because it gave them a moment of levity while they were doing something that they expected to be pretty boring, like searching for a flight. And along with that, I asked for their best piece of feedback email from the last couple of weeks or best feedback tweet. Or like, I want to see that founders are responding to every feedback email. So this isn't a bad way to at least, <laughs> they'll at least run back to their, even if they haven't, they'll at least run back to their <laughs> inbox be like, fuck, 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 and, and go find something. But hopefully they'll respond immediately and say, oh, here's one we got last week. And it's some person effusively saying, oh, this is the greatest thing ever. And uh, one, one startup even, oh, man, they, uh, <laughs> they sent me a voicemail. The, the startup's called Get Bellhops and they do like uh, short-term moves. Sure. And it's powered by a bunch of college students who, who do all these short-term moves. And it's on demand, really great. And they had this voicemail from some guy, an older gentleman who was basically like, he, he said, I just want to let y'all know that, uh, he's from the South, I guess, the gentleman, let's say George, who came over and helped me with my move, was one of the finest young men I have ever met. I was worried about this generation until I met George. He is <laughs> an upstanding young man, and I am so excited for your company, Bellhops. I'm going to tell all my friends. And uh, click. So it was just like, and it was, like it's shit like that. I mean, the bar, yeah. I mean, founders have to realize the bar is set so low because most companies stopped giving a fuck so long ago. Too too early. Yeah. Right? And, and the bar is set so low. Like, go above and beyond. Make strive to make a great experience. And and you'll get, I mean, this guy, I'm just I'm stereotyping here, but I suspect he was not like user 1000 on Twitter. Right. <laughs> and he's not an early adopter, but he had an experience there that was just above and beyond his wildest expectations. He picked up the damn phone to call and just leave a voicemail with your customer service just to say how amazing this was. And it's like, obviously, and, and obviously they closed the feedback loop, right? They told, and of course they passed along the message to George, who I'm sure enjoyed it. But like, that's a sign you're really onto something because it isn't actually that hard. And, and we see, you know, Kevin Hale, who's a, another partner at Y Combinator, founder of Wufu, right? Like, yeah, this is Ama- amazing company. I, I've used oh, them for, used them forever. Yeah. Yeah. And rocked it from Tampa, right? He wasn't chilling in the Valley. He wasn't in New York or he was in Tampa after he left YC and they built an amazing company. Uh, it was acquired I think, by SurveyMonkey, but, but more importantly, he built this amazing customer service experience and it's become like, that's his MO. And, and I want to fund as many Kevin Hales as possible. Again, coming from myself, who was technical enough to be friends with Steve, but not technical enough to program in Lisp, which is what the first version of Reddit was built in, that was my only excuse for existing in like the first year of, of Reddit, was to bring that element and to try to create that, whether it's in community building or, or in product, 
to help build something people love. It's something that I really expect other founders to do. And it ends up being pretty easy, like compared to building out the actual site or architecting the back end. Like this doesn't require, you know, a few years of programming expertise it just requires you to give lots of dams, yeah. which not enough people do. No, I, I agree with you, man. And it's, it's also true in a world where despite the complexity of building, say, architectures and infrastructures that can handle tens of millions, hundreds of millions of users, the Lego pieces are commodities, right? AWS, mm-hmm. Heroku, anybody and their cousin can go and set up one of these accounts and have the basic sort of modular building blocks. But which means one of the easiest ways to get most overlooked ways to differentiate your company is in those touch points, like you said, and sort of having a human experience. Uh, in fact, I was looking up an article that you reminded me of. This is a guest post on my blog called The Most Successful Email I Ever Wrote. And it was about Derek Sivers, so, who founded CD Baby. Oh, he's so awesome. Derek is amazing. And the most successful email he ever sent out was this email that he he sort of very whimsically wrote one night that would become the order confirmation email. And I, I won't read the whole thing, but it starts off with, your CD has been gently taken from our CD baby yes. shelves with sterilized contamination-free gloves and placed onto a satin pillow. A team of 50 employees inspected your CD and polished it to make sure it was in the best possible condition before mailing. Our packing specialist from Japan lit a candle and a hush fell over the crowd. You know, dot, dot, dot. You get the idea. But people just loved this. And it, uh, it, I think it's so refreshing in a world where people are accustomed to being on, you know, going through a telephone tree for united.com for an hour and a half at a time. So yeah, actually, can I challenge all of your listeners? Yes, you can. Boom. Here we go. A challenge from Alexis, assuming every one of them is an entrepreneur or has some kind of side hustle. They should all go right now. Wait till the podcast is over or no, pause it unless you're driving. Don't do this right now if you're driving, but (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you should go and find your notification email because everyone probably sends it. I don't care if you're doing subscription widgets or what. You probably have a notification email. And if it is not half as awesome as the one that Tim just read from Derek, work to make it there. Like just invest that little bit of time to make it a little bit more human or, you know, depending on your brand, right? A little funnier or a little more just different or a little more whatever. It'll be worth it. And that's that's my challenge. There you go. You can tweet at me too when you did it and I'll, I'll give you a favorite <laughs> that, oh, no, that's a great. That, no, that's a that's a great <laughs> challenge. So, Much easier, incidentally, than your challenge, Tim. The last, uh, oh, the, the <laughs> knob, the knob num. Yeah, no yeah. booze, no masturbating. That was a very fascinating experiment. It was we had almost six thousand people participate and log their sort of daily check ins, and uh, I think we had you know, thousands of questions asked and answered. Yeah, it was amazing how informative that was, and also how much hell I got from. Some people who just want to be offended. It's uh, it's sort of a, a right next to basketball and baseball and football, a national sport here, it would seem. But that's okay. I'm very happy with the outcome. <laughs> Quick question on the fine line between determined and entitled slash arrogant. This is something that's led me to cut back on a lot of my angel investing and advising. But I don't know if you saw, God, it's maybe a year or two ago. <laughs> this video, which caused like collective eye rolling by almost every 
every graduate of Princeton was a, a comedy video called the Ivy League Hustle. And then the chorus was, I went to Princeton, bitch. And it's like, <laughs> it's this ridiculous oh, video. It's, it, it, there are actually parts of it that are kind of funny. In fact, I think the star of the video is this guy who pretends to be either an investment banker or, or a consultant. But where I was going with that is I get the feeling like many startup founders, particularly in the Valley, but elsewhere, develop a certain haughty arrogance very, very quickly. And they mistakenly believe that that's necessary in some way to prove they're successful or to make them successful. Where you mentioned you know, Drew from Dropbox. Obviously, you've done very well. The guys I've met who have, for the most part, done the best do not behave like arrogant pricks all the time. Mm. I mean, there are always a handful. But where do you draw the line? Because I feel like there's a danger in any collective identity, whether that's Silicon Valley or even YC, where people view their acceptance as this sort of immunity bracelet where they're allowed to be just blatant pricks. Um, and that's not everybody, but you see it a lot in uh, many different worlds, many different industries. But where do you draw the line for, for you? Is it an important line to draw? Like, What is the proper balance of determined and resilient versus entitled and arrogant and sort of a very in a sort of Icarus like sense where these, these people are sort of increasing the likelihood of failing because they're not going to listen to criticism. They're not going to incorporate feedback in a very insular way. That's a long question, but I'd be curious to hear your thoughts on this. And it's certainly, I'm not pointing the finger at, at YC. It's just the, the sort of systemic, I feel like startup environment as a whole, I've seen a huge uptick in the number of people coming in who really haven't built much, uh, mm -hmm. acting like they believe a Larry Ellison or a Steve Jobs would act. What are your thoughts on all that? Well, uh, first and foremost, I need to watch this video, and then maybe I can create my own the <laughs> public school hustle. I went to UVA, bitch. You, uh, I, no, I would not. You I should. Not do you that. should absolutely do that. <laughs> no, I. You should do, but, that, do that on Patreon. Do that on Patreon, and Patreon, I will. There we go. I I'll, give you, I'll give you some money. I. <laughs> So, okay, obviously, it, I mean, this stuff is bad form. And this is actually part of the reason why I'm so excited for the second season of Silicon Valley on HBO. <laughs> I, I re and I live in, let's keep yeah, in mind, right? I, yeah. I'm a partner at YC. I live in Brooklyn. I spent about half my time each place. I was born in New York. Like, I've, I'm very much, I've got East Coast bias. I mean, it is the right coast, right, Tim? Yeah, Am I right? It is the right it coast. It is the right coast. Yeah. So, so those are my biases. I think it is a problem within the Valley. I think broadly you could say it's a problem in tech, but I think it's exacerbated in the Valley. And so at this, the very first YC dinner, so the partners go around and we'll, we'll give some, some, some sort of advice for how to make the most out of the next three months. And uh, one of my favorite things to say, and what you'll hear the partners always saying is like, congratulations, this means nothing. Like <laughs> you, you, have, this, this is, you, you still have a very long way to go to actually creating something. I think the challenge is it's twofold. It's one that we, we just as humans, you know, no one's going to tell a story or write uh, an article about a founder who is respectful and reasonable, right? We, we're going to sure. think of the outliers. We're going to think of the assholes. Um, and those are the ones that are going to get the attention. And, and that's not to say, you know, that's just sort of a human nature thing. So that, that's, that's part true. of the sample bias. Yeah, but, for sure. But it is still there, right? I've encountered it for sure. And I don't know the way to combat it other than to keep reminding people, uh, if you haven't done shit yet, don't act like you have. Uh, it is not, that is not 
correlation is unequal causation when you see people like Jobs and Ellison. Yes, you know, they had serious attitude problems. Um, that is not why they were successful. Exactly. It's more like they were able to be successful in spite of the fact that they were douchebags. It's a frustrating thing because, I mean, I see this speaking really broadly for like the Valley and, and tech. In a matter of years, we the nerds, we have been championed a lot. We've been lionized a lot. You know, they made films about us. It has become kind of cool, right? It's the new band, right? To start a startup is having a is having a band. <laughs> and that's been great. And I'm happy because generally speaking, I want more people to be thinking of themselves as entrepreneurs. And I, I would love it if we had a world where teenagers and kids were like, man, it'd be really cool to like build a business or to use technology to make the world suck less one day. Like that's great. That as a general thing is something that I like. Then though, we reach these new heights and our what was it? The wax on our wings started to melt. That's right. And we've been seeing this backlash a good bit in the mainstream media, a good bit on the blogs and whatnot, and in the public, certainly in San Francisco. And again, I've seen this as an outsider, right? So I don't, I don't, have a, I don't live in San Francisco, but I've obviously seen all this stuff. And I really hope it's a chance for tech, pinning in really broad strokes here, to take a little bit more of a perspective on where we're at. Uh, and for all the people who are acting like they're already Steve Jobs, like, just stop. That's not going to help. Please. <laughs> And for all of us, like, let's find ways for tech to live up to the ideals we hope it can be. I, I really do believe in the power of, of this technology. I really do believe in the power of software and the internet. But it's going to take work for us to get it to where we want it to be. And acting like assholes is one way to definitely not do that. And more broadly, I want to see, and one of the reasons I work with a lot of the nonprofits I work with, and, and you and I are, of course, both on the advisory board of DonorsChoose.org. Great but work. Mm-hmm. Amazing organization. And I ran uh, a little tilt campaign. It was last year. We funded every single STEM classroom in Brooklyn on Donors Choose. Which so is thank awesome. you to all of you who backed that and you helped me out with that. And like, I, or actually, no, it was a Prizio campaign. Sorry, tilt guys. It was a Prizio campaign. But the point is, one of the reasons why I'm so interested and involved with these organizations is because I really do believe in this technology. And I also believe that it's only going to live up to so much of its potential if we miss out a huge portion of our population that's not even connected, let alone taking advantage of it and able to create on it and code and build and, and have that access and awareness. So, uh, dude, it's a big thing. I know this just started with asshole founders, uh, but my <laughs> advice to them, seriously, for all of you who are listening, you haven't done shit yet. So just relax. Okay. <laughs> Don't act like that. You're not doing yourself any favors. And, uh, and, and hopefully that, that's a bigger challenge to tech because, it really can't. I mean, <laughs> we had two nuclear energy companies. We had a handful of biotech companies in the last batch of YC, some amazing nonprofits. I mean, companies that are fighting cancer, like all kinds of like a nonprofit, uh, the immunity project that wants to create an HIV vaccine, a vaccine for HIV. Like, it's amazing to me that this thing has grown to this point because I remember nine years ago when it was just like, <laughs> like Paul and Jessica and Robert and Trevor in this little house and just we're all just trying to make our websites. And I want it to keep growing, and I want our industry more broadly to be able to solve some really amazing problems, but being assholes for our early stage companies is not a good way to do it. (laughs) 
Well said. No, good answer. Which, just out of curiosity, which, oh. uh, <laughs> you need a breather. Man, I gotta which, get off my soapbox. No, that was good. That was good. You're good at, you're good on the soapbox. I think you should spend as much time as you can there. Uh, <laughs> it's not a load bearing soapbox. Yeah. Thing, so it's gotta, <laughs> gotta work on your kettlebells. Start working yeah. On that. yeah. <laughs> no more waffle diet for you. Uh, <laughs> they're so good though. So closely related to this, and then I, I'd love to talk about your new appointment at, uh, mm. Y Combinator. Right. Uh, but, and I don't want to chew up your, your entire day here. So we'll, we'll, <laughs> but, uh, when are startups too expensive? And I know this is a super mm. tough question, but mm. there seems to be a divide, at least in Silicon Valley right now. Actually, no, it's not. It's elsewhere too, because Fred Wilson has commented on this. He's not so much concerned with the valuations, but with the burn rates. But mm. looking at both of those, it's hard to ignore the, sort of frothy nature of the market at present. And no doubt there are some incredible companies and opportunities still, both if you're looking to join a startup or to invest in one. There are some amazing opportunities. But there also appear to be very, very overpriced companies. Now, if you assume that or agree with that, there then seems to be a divide among the investors. There are people who are for lack of a better term, momentum investors, and they're like, look, everything's going up. It's going up. It's a great company. Even if it's expensive, even if you view it as expensive, it is still a company to invest in because it will be larger later. Some, I'm sure that there, there are other ways they would justify it. And then there are others who say, you know, I, for lack of a better term again, uh, but more of a value investor, I'm looking at different assets, IP, revenue, et cetera. I can't justify these prices. Therefore, I'm going to opt out. Although there's a lot of FOMO and fear of missing out. So even those folks tend to jump on a lot of bandwagons. What is your feeling there in terms of uh, almost like grade inflation, sort of price inflation? Things are, one could argue, quite expensive. When is a startup too expensive to invest in? Huh. So I can't really speak to grade inflation because I didn't go to an Ivy League <laughs> school. But <laughs> actually, you know what, though? I have to call myself out because although I, I went to UVA, I was a humanities major. Well, and, and by the way, UVA so I, I is not a, a bad a school. So no, it's on. an like, amazing <laughs> school. No, no, it's an amazing school. Amazing school. Very grateful for that. But it's funny. All of my friends were engineers. And I didn't like talking about grades with them because the engineering school is the land of deflation, right? That is the that is where they go to crush souls. Right. Whereas history majors, and I also majored in business, it was like uh, the business was the best part because it was like, great, the five of you like colored in the lines, A's. <laughs> but anyway, okay. So, you know, obviously different investors have different sort of expectations, right? If, it, if it's an angel investor- Let's, let's assume day, you're playing with your own money. Okay. Oh, if I, all right. Well, dude, if I'm playing with my own money, I'm making this bet partially because, okay, well, mm, so it gets a little weird, right? I've definitely made bets that were partially just heart and weren't necessarily like, this is absolutely going to be a multi-billion dollar company one day. Right. But even actually, even factoring that in, I wouldn't really care about the valuation because if I really do believe it's either a multi-billion dollar company or some percentage of it is also just because I want this to exist in the world, right? I don't want to be sensitive, right? I don't think there are too many angel investors or early investors who got in at, I don't know what the early Uber rounds were, but there weren't many complaining if they missed out <laughs> on the four versus the nine or the nine right. versus the 20 even because it's, you know, that's, we all, as investors, we go around saying, of course, you know, I only invest in companies I believe are going to be multi-billion dollar companies. And if that's true, then you shouldn't really care. Right. And I do, however, wonder, it does seem like times are really good and capital is still really flush. And that has to, right, this whole business thing comes in cycles. That has to come at some point to an end. Mm -hmm. And I always do 
chafe a bit. It chafes me <laughs> when I see startups uh, really trying to optimize for valuation at the early stage. Yeah. Because you want to, I mean, this is your seed round. You just want to get back to doing the important shit. You want to get back to running your company and have enough money to go do that. Find the optimal way to get the amount of money you need to get to that series A or to that next step, or maybe to not even needing a series A and get back to running your business. And if you start over optimizing for valuation or you start falling in love with the investing process, right? There are people who love or the fundraising process. People love fundraising. Get to go out, talk shop, right? Maybe go out for dinner. Founders who get seduced by that end up failing. Yep. Yeah. And so, you know, the investors that play into that are definitely creating a kind of culture that is not optimal for great companies. At what point do you think founders taking money off the table is a problem? When do they become misaligned with the interests of their employees and investors. So I've noticed a number of companies that shall not be named companies that are doing very well, but people want to take, you know, in some cases, millions of dollars off the table. And for those who are not familiar with this process, that means that they're founders who are selling some of their stock to investors and putting millions of dollars in their bank accounts before employees or investors see any return. When is that a problem? Because I'm seeing it earlier and earlier, and that worries me a bit. Yeah, yeah even, even at like the Series A level, I'm seeing founders who are like, "I'll only do it if we can. Each of us can take a million off the table." And I'm just like, "That seems like a symptom of potential dysfunction and disaster, pending disaster." I don't know, but uh, you know, maybe. Yeah. It gets dicey, right? I certainly don't begrudge. It, it becomes, you know, at the later stages, I really do think it starts aligning. Most everyone's interest. Again, so you have to control for assholes. Right. So you'd hope, like, there's going to be, there are going to be some percentage of founders who will get that, like, personal milestone checked off and it starts becoming a problem. Um, right. Hopefully, right? Hopefully, investors identify that earlier. Hopefully, like, that, hopefully those folks get to some extent managed, but that is not always going to be the case. Um, but I tend to believe the majority of folks who will get to that point are not in that category, but I'm, I'm an optimistic guy. But uh, I've seen it. At an A round, now that I think about it, I've seen it in some instances where I haven't begrudged it because it was, and you end up having to trust the founder. Like as an investor, I'm not going to be like, show me your financial records. But <laughs> you have founders who have a ton of student loan debt. Right. Uh, they just want cleared. Or they have a, oftentimes there's like a family situation. Someone needs a lot of money. There's something, you know, if in instances where there is uh, extenuating that extenuating circumstance, like I can't really begrudge them for that. But I do think there is a growing tendency now to see this happening just kind of because. And yeah. having that peace of mind, again, I, let's assume the slate gets cleared. It's not student loan debt. Let's say you have zero debt. If you're at that point as a founder, I think you are best aligned with your company because you value that equity you have. You want to grow this into an amazing thing. You're, employee, you're all on that same sort of level-ish with your employees, which is so important. Where it becomes a real problem is when founders are basically building companies to get to a Series A to get a couple million in the bank and then just kind of like run their companies, I'm putting that in air quotes, for another few years just to see what happens. Right. That's a real problem. Yeah. And again, if you can sort of factor out the extenuating circumstances, I think that's where it starts to be really dicey. And when you start talking about later stage, I start caring a lot less because I really, I tend to be very founder friendly. I think a lot of, I think... The investors that are going to win the long term realize that they have to be. Mm -hmm. But 
I think there are different it's, ways of being founder friendly. Right. It's being founder friendly <laughs> without like sabotaging the company. Right. And putting 50 people out of work in a year and a half. Exactly. Yeah. Now, uh, just I know this, this might be boring to a lot of people listening, but since I'm curious, how does a potential acquisition offer factor into this? So for instance, I've seen a number of companies who have had acquisition offers that have not consummated for any number of undisclosed reasons. Yeah. And they say that the pricing has been set by this acquisition offer, usually that has been turned down according to the founders. And therefore we want this, since we've turned down this acquisition offer, when we raise our series A, we want to take millions of dollars off the table. Assuming other employees do not have an opportunity in some type of secondary offering at the same time, what is your opinion oh. of, what is your opinion of that situation when it, when or when it does not make sense? Yeah, that's why well, we're getting really inside baseball, man. All right. So, <laughs> you know, I think, oh man. All right. So part of it definitely depends on who made the acquisition offer, right? Like if it's Cloud Town Incorporated, <laughs> I'm going to be like, yeah, I, love the, I love, love those guys. <laughs> yeah, uh, Cloud Town, great portfolio. They just, they're really building the future. It really depends on who it is. And it would, so that, that becomes the first thing where like, all right, if this is just, oh, hey, look, look, people like us. <laughs> it's certainly less leverage or less leverageable than, oh, hey, here is like, this is a legit company where, it makes a lot, it actually makes a lot of sense for that acquiring company. Like there's more leverage sort of implicit in the offer right. uh, and it's sort of validates the price and then thus validates the, Hey, but look, we're going to grow a billion dollar company out of this. And so we just need to take some money off the table, et cetera, et cetera. Dude, I th- it's case by case. I would say I am, ah, uh, am I ambivalent about it? I'm struggling to decide how I feel. So it's a little, <laughs> so I guess, I mean, I guess that sounds ambivalent. Yeah. Uh, it sounds pretty ambivalent. The, Fly in the ointment or one of the flies in the ointment with this type of question is that even a legitimate company, a larger company, it's not uncommon, let me rephrase this, for legitimate larger companies who could be acquirers to open a discussion about acquisition to go on a fishing trip to look at the internals of how a smaller company True. works. And True. they they may have no intention of actually going through with the acquisition. And in fact, this has happened to some of my companies, which sucks and it's fucking That's evil. Waste of fucking time. Yeah. And but nonetheless, the fact of the matter is that company was never going to acquire. They were doing industrial espionage, basically. To de- to yeah, exactly to determine but these are large brand name companies to see if they could replicate what was being done internally. Or this is another thing, to kind of bleed the company uh through protracted due diligence so that they could negotiate then a better price when the company's running out of funding, which is totally fucked, but also not unheard of. So anyway, you know what? I I want to pull us out of uh the weeds, but these are some of the things that I think people need to have a plan for before they're confronted with these situations, lest they make some really bad uh, decisions that are that are done yeah. on reflex, less so than planning. Well, and I think okay, so if a founder listening wants to take some thing away instead of my just general ambivalence about it, uh, <laughs> consider all right. If we all believe that is not just you know, Tim and me, but, but you as a founder, if we all believe that your company is going to be a you know, multi-billion dollar business one day and you don't have the extenuating circumstances, right? There's no student loan debt, family stuff. Shouldn't it be in everyone's interest, especially yours, to hold on to as much of that equity as possible so that in three or five or 10 years when you IPO, uh, you're actually getting far more value from it. It's weird because we all kind of do this dance, right? We all kind of play 
this game as investors and founders and potential acquirers and this all just there's a lot of this other stuff but like at the very very core of it if you believe in your business and if you believe it's going to change the fucking world like you said at TechCrunch Disrupt or whatever thing <laughs> event right if you really believe that stuff you said then it's actually in your best interest to hold on to that and not cash out a bit early and keep putting everything you can because right it has an effect on the rest of your company and I always want to concede that I like I don't know how to run a company better than the founder does. I know that as an investor, but at the very least, have that be your starting point for when you go through that process. No, absolutely. And just to add to that, I would say it doesn't even need to necessarily be until IPO. It could be until Truth. a point where you can offer yes, right, everyone equitable options to your options, meaning opportunities to your early employees and potentially even early investors. Um, So there isn't a complete divergence of, of sort of incentives. Cool. All right. So uh, very related. Who's your current uh, celebrity crush? My current celebrity crush (laughs) or recent. Wow. Uh, Oh man, this is, I, should this be taking me so long? I should ask my (laughs) girlfriend because she would know better than I would. (laughs) Nicholas Cage. Uh, I've, I've heard you pining after the one, <laughs> the one true God, of course. Um, oh my goodness. Uh, 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 why, why? Hold on. This is bad. I don't know. You're not asexual. Are you? I mean, you, you, you have, no, I, I, I mean, I have a girlfriend. <laughs> I know, uh, no, you'll just, have to ask her that I'm question. Just messing with you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, not that there would be anything wrong with that. God forbid. I live in San Francisco. Yeah, let me uh hold on, let me think. Where what movie have I seen lately? I'm totally blanking. I did really appreciate the choreography in the Nicki Minaj Anaconda video. Oh, yeah. For whatever that's worth. So if if Nicki Minaj <laughs> were coming over for dinner, uh assuming your girlfriend didn't mind, what would oh, you what? Oh, oh, well let's change that then. If 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 she's coming over for dinner, I'll go with uh Beyonce cuz then my girlfriend would totally be down with that. <laughs> what would you cook Beyonce if she came over? Oh man. <laughs> I can't cook, Tim. I mean, right, I can. What, what, I co- what cocktail would you purchase <laughs> for Beyonce? Dude, I, I can barely. I got a. I got a shaker and all that stuff, and I tried to make a Manhattan, and it just tasted like garbage. <laughs> and so I just went back to drinking whiskey. So, so whiskey That's, and waffles is what you're telling me. I can't. I don't even have a waffle line, dude. I think that I, should be the name of your podcast, by the way. I could take her out. <laughs> whiskey and waffle. <laughs> that becomes the theme. I could, there's a good. There's a good Thai place near me called Pock Pock. Uh, which is amazing. <laughs> oh, those guys are famous. They, yeah, I actually, I have, I have Pock Pock's cookbook literally about 10 feet away from me. Dude, I love Pock Pock. And it, yeah. it's, it's weird because it's like, it's legit. Like, it's not Pad Thai. I'm not an authority on Thai food. Uh, and the dude's white. So I know a lot of people are going to be really skeptical and be like, really? But it, he actually does it. He actually does a really good job with it. It's good restaurant. <laughs> Wait, are you going to, you're not going to set me up with this Beyonce date? Uh, well, you know, I'm working on it. This is not the yeah, kind of thing out, I have to, I have to, I have to start returning her text messages. She's, uh, <sighs> she's just like three in the morning. They get, they got kind of incessant. Uh, <laughs> so to sort of bring this volume one of our discussion <laughs> to a close, what are your current projects and where can people learn more about them? Cause, uh, uh you, you have a lot to share. You have a ton more. of background, but why don't, why don't you give an overview of what you're currently focused on and what you'd like people to check out. All right. Well, I am a partner now at Y Combinator. I uh, joined as a full-time partner last batch in June, and we have another batch coming up. And we're taking applications right now. So 
because I know every single one of you already signed up to listen to the Stanford class we're going to be teaching how to start a startup, you should also go and apply at apply.ycombinator.com. And then we also accept nonprofits. By the way, we have some amazing Watsi, W-A-T-S-I, was an amazing nonprofit that went through the program. And, and you know we're willing and able to take applications for the next 27 days to apply. So apply to Y Combinator and let them know Alexis sent you. I don't actually think there's a section in the form for that. but uh, <laughs> That's not in the drop down for how did you, you know, hear about us? Yeah, how did you hear about this? <laughs> <laughs> what is, optimize uh, the funnel, man. <laughs> uh, just to put a hard date on it, what is the deadline for the application? The deadline because you all are going to wait until the last day is October 14th. <laughs> so put your calendar, set your deadline for October 13th. I should have just told people the 13th. Yeah, it's October 13th. Get it in by October 13th. Tweet at me when you do so I yeah. can thank you for sending in that application. And then I'm also getting into this podcasting game, Tim, and uh, well, I- starting up a little thing. It's called NYRD Radio. That's uh, New York Research and Development or NERD uh, Radio. <laughs> and uh, it's just going to be – basically, it's an extension of the Without the Permission book and tour – in that I want to talk to people who are doing really cool stuff using the internet to be entrepreneurial in weird, interesting ways. So not just founders of startups, but like comedians. My first guest is Baratunde Thurston. Oh, wonderful. Yeah, uh, he's, he's great. Amazing. And he runs a company called Cultivated Wit. Uh, and I'm also talking to a friend of mine, a supermodel named Cameron Russell, who has an amazing TED Talk, one of the top 10 most viewed about beauty. Uh, and she started an amazing activist group and sort of creative space in Brooklyn. But all these people are using the internet in unconventional ways to just make stuff, to create. And I want to show them off. And then the other section of the podcast is called Office Hours, which is just a riff off of what we do all the time as investors and partners. And that's just basically doing Skype chats with, I'll be doing Skype chats with random people uh, from all over the internet who want to get some feedback, want to have some office hours with me about whatever they're working on. And uh, we got some really interesting folks. I went to the R Entrepreneur, or no, R Startup subreddit a couple weeks ago. I said, hey, what's up? Holler at me if you want to do this segment. And we had a bunch of great people. So if you are interested in even coming on the show, you should uh, tweet at me because I was not proactive enough to come up with a better way for you to get in touch with me. <laughs> so just tweet at me. Let me know. And, and, uh, uh, yeah. and I'll include and it, links to all of this in the show notes as well, folks. So you can check that out at uh, fourhourworkweekallspelledout.com forward slash podcast. You'll be able to find uh, a blog post accompanying this episode with links to everything as well. And, and this all came full circle, man. I want to thank you because it was on Four Hour Work Week that I dropped the first excerpt of my book without their permission when it launched last October. So it's almost, it's been a year now and here we are full circle and I'm dropping my podcast. So, uh, yeah, well, you know, it's my, my pleasure. I think you do a, a lot of good work out in the world and, uh, I, I would encourage people to take a look at some of your activism as well. Oh, yeah. Net neutrality, uh, man. Yeah. Yeah. You want to, I, I please give that a plug because I think it's a very, important, critically important topic. So how can people learn more about that? And most important, take some action. Oh man. Okay. So technically they should have taken action a few days ago because the open (laughs) comments period just ended. But let me, let me thank a few people. 3.7 million people commented, sent basically sent in a message to the FCC saying, don't fuck up the internet. Don't let cable companies screw up the internet, preserve Net neutrality uh, by reclassifying broadband as Title II, which is not the sexiest thing, but you know it's DC. But it's really, really important we get this right. And uh, right now we're going to have these open 
uh, sort of discussions. The FCC is having these open forums now for the next few weeks. So basically pay attention. And the best group actually to stay on top of this stuff right now is either EFF, which has just always been on point for protecting yep. our digital rights. EFF.org. Um, the elect- EFF.org. Yeah, Electronic Frontier Foundation. They're awesome. Or fightforthefuture.org. They are a very startup-y nonprofit that works to expand the internet's power for good. And they've been on the front lines of this whole thing. You probably saw the internet slowdown day. Everyone, I mean, it was Reddit, Imager, Tumblr, everyone was participating. And that was a record uh, for number of comments sent to the FCC. So uh, yay, internet. So hopefully this is another SOPA PIPA situation and all of us can save the internet one more time. So thank you if you helped. And yeah, won't be the last time, time either. Yeah, it won't, yeah. Be, it won't be the last <laughs> time. <laughs> it's going to still be time for that because, <laughs> because look, right, at the end of the day, reclassifying broadband as Title II just comes down to making sure, and Jimmy Kimmel did a nice illustration of this. John Oliver did a great one as well on his show. But uh, it just comes down to making sure that all those bits are treated equally. And so if Tim Ferriss makes an amazing podcast, any one of you can hear it as easily, as quickly as any other content as any other podcast, whether it's coming from the White House or whether it's coming from NBC, like it's the exact same. And, and it should be treated that way because it lets the next Tim Ferriss come up with the same level playing field that you had and the White House has and NBC has to compete for our attention. <laughs> Hopefully been a lot better than me without all the defects. But yes, I agree. <laughs> the, well, the, you the, know, the, which all, always <laughs> improvement, man. Always improvement. Constant improvement. Well, Alexis, thank you so much for being on the show and taking the time, man. I'm sure we'll be chatting again. What is your Twitter handle for people so they can say hello? At Alexis, A-L-E-X-I-S, O'Hanian, O-H-A-N-I-A-N. I know it's, it's, it's a little long and ethnic, but uh, there are not too many Alexis O'Hanians out there, so I got that on lock and uh, <laughs> got to rep, rep the Armenian thing, so there's no way I was not going to put my last name in there. You got to start boxing, man. You got to start boxing. You know what? That's a tough guy combo. You're named after a boxer (laughs) and you're Armenian. You really got to work on that. I know. I know. Well, you know what? If you'll train me, Tim, you know. (laughs) I I only have short guy foo. I can work on it. But uh, there's some fantastic Muay Thai instructors in New York City. And uh, there's also a wonderful Brazilian jiu-jitsu school uh, run by Marcelo Garcia, who's a six-time world champion, uh, which is amazing. Uh, also co-owned by Josh Waitzkin, who is also on this podcast, who's a, considered a chess prodigy and was the basis for searching for Bobby Fischer. So you should... Uh, what? Yeah, you should swing by. It's an amazing school. Why, I could beat up Bobby Fischer? Uh, no, you probably... Well, Bobby Fischer probably... Would kick my ass. Uh, the, Josh Waitzkin probably not, because he's a black belt yeah. under Marcelo. But you could certainly learn a lot from both of them. So I will... Uh, it would be a better story if he kicked my ass, actually. I could tell, I'd tell my grandkids that. I think uh, that can probably very easily be arranged. <laughs> so I will uh, put all the links, folks, in the show notes. And uh, until next time, Alexis, thanks so much. And everyone, thanks for listening. Thank If you want more of The Tim Ferriss Show, you can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or go to 4hourblog.com where you'll find an award-winning blog, tons of audio and video interview stories with people like Warren Buffett and Mike Shinoda from Lincoln Park, the books, plus much, much more. Follow Tim on Twitter. at twitter.com slash tferris. That's T-F-E-R-R-I-S-S. Or on Facebook at facebook.com slash timferris. Until next time, thanks for listening. <laughs>